0: Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another one of our solo deep dive episodes, an episode where it's just me, just you, and we're working on expanding your relational self-awareness by exploring an important relationship topic. And we've got a juicy one today. Have you ever had this thought, I love my partner, but I don't know if I'm in love with them? It certainly is a statement that I've heard lots of times over the years. I've heard clients or students describing their relationship in this way. I've certainly heard it on reality TV shows, in movies. Early in my career, when I would hear the statement, I would just sort of like nod my head, and I would sort of imagine that I knew what the statement meant. Perhaps you've also kind of nodded along when you've heard somebody say it. But I want to challenge us a little bit. Love is complicated, like really complicated. And what I know for sure is that a statement like, I love them, but I'm not in love with them, needs to be teased apart. It's a declaration that's masquerading as if it's an explanation. It sounds like you've just said something decisive and clear, but you actually haven't really told us much of anything. It's a sentence or a statement it needs unpacking. And if you've been listening to the show or following my work for a hot minute, you know that I love unpacking. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. Here's our plan. First, I'm going to make some recommendations about how to listen to this episode, especially if someone has just said this to you, especially if you are currently sitting with this thought, and or especially if you've just recently said this to your partner. I'm going to talk about some of how our romanticized mythology creates the conditions for this thought. I love them, but I'm not in love with them to be a really scary thought and how the science of love can help us better understand what's going on with this thought. Then I'm going to talk about some of the deeper vulnerabilities that this thought might actually be revealing to us. And then I'm going to make some recommendations about what you can do about this thought. So, okay, if somebody has just said this to you, I wanna start with this really important qualifier. If you're listening and you've been on the receiving end of this comment, I first just wanna extend a ton of empathy and compassion because I can imagine this being a painful thing to hear. I can imagine it stirring all kinds of tender emotions inside of you, sadness, disappointment, fear, confusion, anger perhaps. So if you're in this situation, right now especially, I just want to invite and challenge you to listen to this episode carefully. I want to invite you to resist the urge to kick into like over-functioning mode, to kick into action mode. You're going to hear me explore some layers, and I'm frankly feeling a little bit worried that you will hear all of this and have an urge to approach your partner and say, aha, you know that thing you said to me? I now understand what you're saying. And if you can just do this, this, and this, you're going to feel better about our relationship. And if you can just look at that statement from another angle, what you're going to see is that you're being short-sighted. I'm worried about that risk for you as you listen. And I want to remind you, You can only ever control your side of the street, right? So if you're with a partner who's telling you that they love you, but they're not in love with you, you certainly could ask them to listen to the episode. Absolutely. I just want you to be careful to not work harder than they are working. So if you are listening and this statement, I love them, but I am not in love with them, if that feels like your deep truth at this moment. I want to ask you also to listen carefully. I do not want to deny or invalidate any aspect of your experience. Relationships, at least in the context that we discuss them here on Reimagining Love, are free will arrangements, right? So perhaps you are ending a relationship right now, and this is your narrative of the ending, right? I love them, but I am not in love with them. That's fine. In fact, you may already be noticing some defensiveness rising in you, right? Like, why is Alexandra making this so complicated? Well, it does not have to be complicated for you. I am not in the business of deciding for people whether their relationship should continue or whether it should end. I am in the business of providing information and tools and strategies and insights and perspectives that can help people make choices that feel aware and aligned. So I'm going to offer some ways of framing this common and troubling relational knot, but you may very well end this episode exactly where you started it. And perhaps all this episode is going to do is help you feel more clear on what needs to happen next. And that will be a victory. If you are having this thought, just take some time, You can press pause, or you can do this later. Take some time to just feel your way into that thought. Feel your way into the thought, I love them, but I am not in love with them. And as you hold that thought, what do you notice in your body? And where do you feel it in your body? And is there an emotion attached to that thought? What is the emotion? And does that emotion feel familiar? When else have you felt it in your life? Those questions are about the interplay of thoughts and emotions, right? Our thoughts fuel emotions and our emotions shape and inform our thoughts. And that knot of emotion and cognition can create an urgency to act like I'm having the thought. I love them, but I'm not in love with them. It creates fear inside of me, and I feel like I have to do something. I have to tell them. I have to break up with them, right? It can create that urgency to act. And what can happen with this thought, I love them, but I am not in love with them, is that the thought can take on emotion and meaning in a way that we scare ourselves, in a way that we start to feel an urgency to do something. And so I'm just reminding us here about another path. There's a path of containment, of holding that knot of emotion and cognition. Containment is not suppression. I'm not asking you to push it away. I'm asking you to just hold it, to notice it, to sit alongside it, sort of get to know it a bit better and to know that separating an experience we're having of our relationship from any action that we need to take. We can do that. We can separate an experience we're having of our relationship from any action that might need to be taken because it is in that process of just getting to know our internal experience that we can then move into choice, choice that is conscious and choice that is thoughtful thoughtful—versus choice that is reflexive, impulsive, kind of fueled by fear or anxiety. That's your invitation as we kind of unpack what's going on here. And this next thing I want to talk about is this framing that I call Disney Did Us Dirty. A few months ago, I was doing an event with my good friend, Mark Groves, and somebody I think must have put in the chat, Disney did us dirty. And so I have used that line ever since when I want to talk about the romanticized mythology that can get us into all kinds of trouble in our relationships. So every single one of us is a product of of our culture. We absorb cultural messages from a very, very early age. And we have all internalized lots and lots of beliefs and notions and images and myths about intimate relationships. And one of the most problematic notions I find is that notion that intimate partnership should be easy. That if this is the one, if this is my soulmate, then the experience I ought to be having Is one of steady enthusiasm. That's a myth that we all have absorbed in ourselves, in our bones, sometimes at a not even really particularly conscious level. So that thought, I love them, but I'm not in love with them, sometimes reflects the internalization of a highly romanticized vision of intimate partnership. Right As a culture, we tend to be way more obsessed with falling in love than we are with living in love. As a culture, we value romance over commitment, and we idealize the chase, and we demean the cultivation. Our notions of love are heavily influenced by the media we consume. Movies, TV, music, porn, social media. And in all of those, we see lots and lots of highlight reel moments. Right? The sort of highlights of what we imagine a love story to be. And we don't see very many ordinary moments. We also see lots of dramatic turning points and lots of crises. And we don't see very many sort of mundane nuances. And all of that can make it really hard to scale our expectations. Like a lot of us end up walking around thinking, how am I supposed to feel? How am I supposed to feel? in my relationship. What we know for sure is that love is an alive thing. It changes over time, and that is normal, common, and expected. Dr. Helen Fisher has a wonderful TED Talk in which she talks us through the neurophysiology of love, and we have linked Dr. Fisher's TED Talk in the show notes. She explains that love is initially often marked by lust and sexual desire, and it's fueled early on by estrogen and testosterone. As love develops, there can be a stage of attraction, and that stage tends to be fueled by dopamine and norepinephrine. And as a relationship deepens and becomes established and committed, partners become attached to each other. And the neurochemistry here starts to tilt towards oxytocin and vasopressin. That neurophysiological shift that I just walked us through highlights and shows us that there is an x axis of time in a love story. And as time passes, love changes. And it changes literally in terms of the chemistry that is evoked when we think about our partner, when we're with our partner, when we make love with our partner, that changes over time. And in some ways, that's wonderful because. We want and we need to feel trust. And trust takes time to build, right? And trust is that kind of attachment, oxytocin, like that deep exhale. In order to get the thing we want, which is that sense of trust and safety, in building that trust, some of the chemistry needs to shift. We need to shift away from some of that high dopamine rush kind of feeling. You know, it's neither good nor bad, right, nor wrong, but we do need to hold on to this both and, right? There's a loss and there's a benefit. So perhaps we lose some of that early chemistry, but we also gain a sense of trust, reliability, commitment, ease, that exhale. When we first started teaching the Marriage 101 class two decades ago, it used to be a team-taught class. There was a uh, maybe four or five faculty, and we would rotate. Each of us would, you know, we would take a week and lecture, and then the next one would lecture the next week. But we would all show up on the first day of class in order to introduce ourselves and to talk our students through the curriculum. At the end of that first lecture, we had students take out a piece of paper <laughs> back in the days when students had notebooks. And we would ask students to write down a question that they had about marriage. And then we would collect all these bits of paper and we would answer them as a group. It was really fun. And every year we would get lots of versions of this question. When does the sex go bad in a marriage? How long does it take for marriage to get boring? That question would come up all the time. It's like our students had this intuitive Awareness that love changes, but they were at risk, like all of us are at risk, of conflating change with erosion, right? That a change means it's getting worse. So saying I'm in love with you and saying I love you, those are different feelings. They're capturing different experiences. It's normal and common and expected for some shift to happen. It's also normal, common, and expected to have feelings about the fact that love changes over time. However, I posit to you that there's a world of difference between grieving, that some of the novelty is wearing off, and deciding that this means something is wrong with us, wrong with our partner, or wrong with our relationship. We do need to grieve that some of the novelty does wear off to mourn the dissipation of what some people call NRE, new relationship energy. And we need to mourn and release and grieve so that we can welcome and get to know everything that lies beyond, everything that lives beyond that initial rush. And the research shows that couples who are happy together, who are satisfied in their relationship, they do get to have those bursts of passion still and that they do report still really, really enjoying the love that they make and the time that they spend together. A while ago, I received a message from somebody on Instagram that really was so touching. A woman shared with me that her married friend had recently said to her, I think you keep feeling disappointed by your boyfriends because you think that love is more exciting than it actually is. And this woman's confusion was understandable, right? So her friend is saying, I think that you're confused. I think you think that love is more exciting than it is. But it makes sense because romantic comedies don't ever show us like a random Wednesday evening during year eight of a couple's relationship, right? So it's understandable that we are at risk if our love story doesn't look like, you know, breathless makeout sessions in the rain, that we're at risk of feeling like we're somehow doing it wrong, and we're at risk of saying, maybe this isn't the right person for me, or we're at risk of asking what's wrong with me. So, this woman who sent me the DM found her friends' insight to be really permission-giving to her. So, wrapping this part up, you know, to some extent we've all internalized the myth that love should be a constant state of delight that our thoughts should be, I want to make love to you all the time, I want to be near you all the time, I never have attraction to anyone else, I never think about my former partner, I never wonder what my life would be like if I hadn't committed myself to you. So if these myths live inside of us unchallenged, we're at risk of experiencing a ton of cognitive dissonance the moment that we are attracted to somebody else or we do have a flash of missing a former partner, or we do want some space away from our partner, or we don't want to make love some of the time, right? Those thoughts become scary. Those experiences become upsetting. And any of those passing thoughts can start to take on a life of their own and lead us to a conclusion, uh uh-oh, right? I must just maybe love them still, like I am attached to them, but I'm not in love with them. And that can sort of and feel like it is the capital T truth about the relationship. If we're saying that the neurophysiology of love changes, this also means that sexual desire changes over time. And I think that is sometimes what people are saying when they say, I love them, but I'm not in love with them. They're saying something has changed inside of me around my erotic attraction to my partner, around how I experience desire with my partner. And what I want to just talk you through is that researchers have identified that there are two types of erotic desire, of sexual desire. There's spontaneous desire and there's responsive desire. Spontaneous desire sounds like this. Huh, sex would be awesome right now. Responsive desire sounds like this. Mm-hmm. I was not thinking about wanting to have sex, but because you do, and because I can't think of a really great reason not to, sure, I'm willing. Or responsive desire sounds like this Well, I wasn't thinking about wanting sex, but now that we've had some time together, I definitely could have sex. Right? So responsive desire is context dependent, it's sort of activated or triggered by something in the context, something between you and your partner, something that shifts inside of you, rather than just sort of a spontaneous thought. And research has found that early on in a relationship, there tends to be a preponderance of spontaneous desire. And research has found that over time, there tends to be a shift for one or both partners towards more responsive desire. It is not the case that one type of desire is Better than another type of desire. What matters is that partners understand how desire tends to operate for themselves and how desire tends to operate for their partner. And it also means that in relationships where one or both partners does tend to experience more of a responsive desire, it means that desire needs to be cultivated, that couples need to develop and commit to erotic practices so that the partner or partners with more responsive desire has opportunities to have their desire sparked. I talk about this a lot more in my second book, Taking Sexy Back, but I wanted to talk about it in this episode because I know that it can feel upsetting or confusing when you start to feel the nature of your desire shifting inside of you and or when you observe the nature of your partner's desire shifting inside of them. What's so cool and so beautiful is that love is an infinitely renewable resource and that couples who commit to cultivating desire deserve to feel proud of themselves and proud of each other, that they prize the relationship and value and nurture intimacy rather than somehow feeling broken or inadequate because they need to invest time and attention to their sexual connection. As I said before, there can be some amount of grief in that shift from a phase of new relationship energy into a phase of effort and a need to cultivate. But the question is, can you and your partner grieve together? Right? Because grieving together feels so much better than panicking and retreating. The question is also, can the two of you bring a bit of levity to the situation? Right? Can you reminisce together, perhaps, about those early days while honoring and doing what needs to be done about cultivating erotic connection during this later stage of your relationship? And, by the way... Sometimes reminiscence itself can spark desire. Sometimes memory, right, and talking about something that had happened a while ago when you had more new relationship energy, that can become itself a portal or an opening or a gateway to erotic desire. Here's another layer. Perhaps you're thinking, I love them, but I'm not in love with them. Because you're imagining that there is some way that you should feel that is different than how you do feel. Okay, so earlier I had outlined some of the like neurophysiology of love and I did that to validate that love changes over time. But it's also the case that not all of us move in a linear way through those stages just like that. Some of us do. We fall in love and then we deepen into commitment others of us do not fall in love. We step into love one step at a time. There's not a right and there's not a wrong. Again, we, as a culture, we sort of elevate this idea of being swept off your feet and falling in love. And those of us who step into love then are perhaps left feeling like we're doing it the wrong way. But what I want to validate is that notion of stepping into love might particularly be your pathway if you are a survivor of trauma, either trauma in a prior intimate relationship or trauma that you went through when you were young. Right, Think about it. Falling in love is quite an out-of-control feeling. And for somebody who is a survivor of trauma, a relational trauma especially, that idea can feel out of control and really scary. And therefore, your path may be to go slowly and mindfully and to keep your feet planted squarely on the ground. No falling at all. And if that's the case, you might not experience that I'm in love with you feeling. And I want to give permission for that to be really, really, really okay. Perhaps you let yourself feel sad about that. But I want to ask you to not let yourself feel ashamed about that. Right? There aren't better and worse pathways here. There are just our pathways. And our pathways are going to be informed and shaped by experiences that we have gone through up until this moment, this relationship with this person. And you get to assess the quality of the relationship that you're in based on how it feels to you. So you get to ask questions like this. To what degree do I feel seen, heard, valued, cared for in this relationship? To what degree do I feel able to support my partner's hopes and dreams? To what degree am I able to be tender with my partner's growing edges? To what degree do we speak with concern and gentleness with each other? To what degree is our erotic connection a place of safety, play, pleasure, connection, enjoyment, To what degree are we aligned on a vision of where we're heading as individuals and as a couple? The answers to these questions are found internally and in the space between you and your partner. The answers to these questions are not found in some objective sense of what, quote, in love feels like or is supposed to feel like. There is not an exact right recipe of lust, passion, care, commitment, etc., you don't need to hold yourself or your relationship up to some externally defined standard. It's about how you get to feel with your partner. It's about how your partner gets to feel with you. And it's about what the two of you get to create together. Okay, let's move on to what else this statement, uh, I love them, but I'm not in love with them, might be showing or highlighting. So there is no exact recipe that distinguishes I love you from I'm in love with you, right? That also means that when I say I love you to you, and when you say I love you to me, neither one of us is ever going to truly know... how similar those experiences are, right? We're saying the same words to each other, but we will never actually know the interior felt experience that each of us is reflecting in those words, right? When I say I love you to you, you actually cannot fully understand what I'm saying because you can't experience how I feel about you in this moment in time, through my perspective. You can't. You are not inside of me. You are not me. The best that you can do is an approximation. Thanks to the power of empathy, when I say I love you to you, there's a network of mirror neurons that gets activated inside of you, right? Your right hemisphere inside of your brain is going to light up and you're going to feel like an intuitive, empathic sense of my love. That's what you're going to feel inside of you. And you're also going to have the experience of like sort of this network of associations that you have around love. All of that's going to light up inside of you when I say I love you. And you are also going to have an approximation that is like how you feel about me. When I say I love you to you, you can rest in that sense of, yeah, I know how I feel about her. And so that must be what she's sort of saying to me. (laughs) But we're not ever going to have like a pie chart or a diagram or a computer print out that we can put side by side to compare and contrast my felt sense of I love you and your felt sense of I love you, right? We don't there's no lab work. <laughs> there's no blood draw we can do to analyze the exact, you know, blend that makes up my love for you and your love for me. We're not ever going to get that analysis. That is one of the mysteries. Of love, right? We have to persist anyways inside of the space of ultimately not ever knowing. We have to sit with the mystery, be humbled by the mystery, and line up, right? La- I line up your words, your actions, how I feel in your presence. So that thought, I love them, but I'm not in love with them. It might reflect a fear that they are more into you then you are into them, right? When you're saying, I love them, but I'm not in love with them, it may be the case that what you're saying is, "Uh uh-oh, it sure seems like they like me more than I like them. It sure seems like they're more enthusiastic about me than I am about them. And listen, some amount of enthusiasm discrepancy in a relationship is expected and understandable. And when we have these glimpses of awareness, that there is an enthusiasm discrepancy, it can feel really, really tender. Feeling like you like someone more than they like you can spike deep feelings of vulnerability and fear. And feeling like somebody likes you more than you like them can spike feelings of guilt and feelings of confusion. I say all of this to ask you to hold on to nuance and complexity here that we're not ever going to have a printout that shows exactly how we each are feeling towards each other, and that how emotions are expressed, how the I love you is said, how the I love you is shown, it's idiosyncratic, right? Emotion expression is idiosyncratic, and it's deeply culturally bound. So there's lots and lots that we can learn about ourselves when we tolerate those feelings. Oof, it feels like there's maybe some discrepancy here, I'm noticing it, right? Just tolerating the feelings and noticing them instead of acting on them gives us a chance to practice patience, to practice curiosity, to practice persistence in the presence of love's more existential questions. And this is certainly one of love's more existential questions. Okay. Moving us towards the finish line here, let's talk about what the heck to do with the thought, I love them, but I'm not in love with them. And I'm gonna start by making a strong suggestion of what not to do. Do not plop this statement, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Don't plop it on your partner's lap as if it's their problem to solve, right? We don't put this statement on our partner's lap and shrug our shoulders and just sort of say, it is what it is. It's not. You are one half of the equation. And if you feel disappointed, shut down, not proud of the relationship, right? You have to approach it as a wee problem, enlisting your partner. Turn towards your partner, lead with love, enlist their help. Say something like, I'm feeling really disconnected lately. Say something like, I miss how we used to behave. Um, say something like, I'm feeling disappointed in the quality of our connection these days. How about you? How are you feeling? That's radically different than just making a declaration, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, and just sort of shrugging your shoulders, right? We have to work together to figure out what helps each of us move from sort of retracted and shut down to engaged and open. In terms of what to do, I want to let you know, I think you've already done one big thing. I think you have turned towards this thought by listening to this episode. And next, I think you just get to notice whether and how this information I've provided and these perspectives I've offered, just notice, does it change where this thought lives inside of you and how this thought feels to you? Perhaps this episode will kind of just dissipate the thought a little bit, kind of take melt some of the edges of it. Perhaps this episode will give you some new tools for how you might turn towards your partner and engage with your partner. It might give you some tools for how you quiet that fearful thought and just bring yourself back to noticing all of what is good and bountiful and plentiful in the relationship. Okay, something else that you can do, is you can ask yourself a constraint question. We've talked about constraint questions before on Reimagining Love, and you know that I love a good constraint question. A constraint question starts with these words, what is keeping me from? So here, the constraint question is, what is keeping me from feeling more enthusiastic about and engaged in this relationship? So you can ask that question of yourself. You can sit with that question. What keeps me from feeling more enthusiastic about and engaged in this relationship? Maybe it's you need to ask something from your partner. I would love for you to come up with a date night plan. Or when we make love, I would love to spend more time kissing. Right? Maybe there's an ask that perhaps you are struggling with enthusiasm because there's an unmet need that you're sitting on that you haven't brought to your partner. Okay, perhaps right now you simply cannot bring the same enthusiasm to the relationship that you have been able to bring at other times, not because of something that's between the two of you, but because you're struggling with an illness, because you have a new baby, because you're overwhelmed with work, because you are struggling with this chapter of this seemingly never-ending pandemic. So there are things that even though I've been saying that love is an infinitely renewable resource, energy is not. Energy is not infinite. We have limited amounts of energy and a new baby or an illness or a pandemic can limit our energy and can limit the amount of enthusiasm we're able to bring to our partner. So can you cut yourself some slack and can you share this truth with your partner? It might feel really validating to them for you just to own that you are struggling a bit right now with bringing a lot of juicy, yummy, warm, positive, enthusiastic energy. That's okay. Right? Love is not a steady state of enthusiasm. We've already said that. Next thing you can do, you can explore your motivation. So Dr. Bill Dougherty has created a treatment model called discernment therapy. And discernment therapy is for couples who are not sure if they're going to stay in their relationship or break up. So usually couples therapy begins with this presupposition that we are working on the relationship. But what Bill already noticed is that if a couples therapist does not have two customers, like two people who are ready to work on the relationship, the therapy is going to be rudderless. It's going to be directionless. And what's going to happen is the, what he calls the leaning in partner, the partner who really is clear they want the relationship, that partner is at risk of overworking in the therapy. And the leaning out partner, the partner who's having doubts about the relationship, is at risk of feeling in a couple's therapy, like the depth of their concerns about the viability of the relationship are not being validated. So therefore, in discernment counseling, one of the central questions That the discernment counselor asks the couple, especially the couple who is struggling with motivation, struggling with enthusiasm, struggling with hope, is they ask that partner, do you want to want to heal the relationship? Do you want to want to turn towards your partner once again? So I am asking you in this episode to ask yourself that question. That's something that you can do. If you're struggling with that thought, I love them, but I'm not in love with them, you can explore your motivation. Do you want to want to heal the relationship? Do you want to want to feel enthusiastic again? And it may be that the answer to that question is no. You may be, it may be that you are shut down beyond repair, right? I am not for a moment going to invalidate that relationships end. Relationships sometimes need to end. There are lots and lots of reasons. But I am maybe inviting you to be, to take it to another layer and know that the thought you're having, I love them, but I am not in love with them, may have an additional component, right? Which is, I love them, but I'm not in love with them. And I just don't have it in me to try, or I just don't have it in me to keep on trying. Right? So get clear on that. And then the last thing I would say in terms of what you can do is you can get help, you can get support. Perhaps what this episode does is it just kind of gives you the oomph you need to start some individual therapy or to start some couples therapy. But I will say, I want you to be in a relationship with a therapist who can sit with you in complexity rather than making a sweeping statement like, "Uh uh-oh, I love them, but I'm not in love with them. Well, that's a red flag. You got to go. Relationship's over, right? I want you to be with a therapist, whether it's an individual therapist or a couple's therapist who can just slow you down, tease it apart, peel back the layers, just like we have done in this conversation. Okay, so wrap-ups, conclusions, takeaways. (laughs) A relationship is not going to be sustainable if two people are just waiting around for a particular way that they want to feel. Love is a verb. It's an active process. The statement, I love them, but I'm not in love with them, needs to be unpacked and investigated. It's common, but it's not precise, and it carries a lot beneath it. If you've been on the receiving end of this statement, it can be very painful to hear. If you're having this statement, reflect on your expectations for romantic relationships, where they come from. Reflect on the science about the ebbs and flows of love, of sexual desire, of general enthusiasm in a long-term relationship, and reflect on your own relationship history and or history of trauma. Express your wants and needs to your partner. Find out their wants and needs. Perhaps do a little grieving together about how love changes over time. And remember that sometimes the thought or statement signals that one person is no longer willing or committed. And know that if this relationship is no longer serving the two of you and you've tried to work on issues, you know, it may be that it's a sign that this relationship has run its course. So I want to end by coming back to those questions that I posed earlier and reminding you that you get to assess the quality of your relationship based on how it feels to you and how it feels to your partner. To what degree do I feel seen, heard, valued, and cared for? To what degree am I able to support my partner's hopes and dreams? To what degree am I able to be tender with my partner's growing edges? To what degree do we speak with concern and gentleness to each other? To what degree is our erotic connection a place of safety and play and pleasure, connection, enjoyment? And to what degree are we aligned on a vision of where we're heading as individuals and as a couple? Thank you so much for being with me today, and I look forward to your feedback on this episode, and I look forward to connecting with you next time on Reimagining Love. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.